0: The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ in his mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Today's scripture reading comes from Acts chapter 26, verses 24 through 32. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king rose and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, "This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar." This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ.
1: Thanks, Fish. Well, good morning to you again. Um, if I missed you at the beginning, uh, my name is Stacy Croft, and. Um, it's good to be with you. I don't. I don't get to be over here very much, and uh, I'm often over at, at Music Row, and m- we meet in um, Scarlett Bennett over there. This typically at 8:30 and 10:30. So it's good to see you. Some of you I, I know um, well. Some of you I I don't know. And um, I've lived in Nashville for gosh, 18 years and some change, and um, have done ministry here in a couple of different contexts, uh, eight years with our church uh, at Music Row, and before that, uh, a good 10 years with a campus ministry called RUF at Vanderbilt, and I've um, loved those years, and um, I'm from Texas originally, and it's where I met my wife, and uh, we both grew up there and went to school there at, at Baylor, and I actually got to um, run track at, at Baylor. And um, for that's, I, I say that not because I'm cool. Like my boys, when you talk about track, that's not like one of those sports that people go, oh, dude, that's awesome. Like my boys are like, why would you do that? You know? Um, and, uh, but it, it was, I enjoyed it. Uh, it was great. Um, uh, you know, track is a sport um, that, Um, Like many sports today, you know, you've probably seen this with a lot of sports. They've gotten a more more, uh, intellectual, they're trying to be at least. Uh, You know, they get you into a lot of the trajectories and angles. And, you know, we watch things like the Manning cast so we can act like we know more about sports than we do. And so, like, track, though, is really that kind of thing uh, where, you know, it, it really is about physicality. It is about angles. It is about technique. And the higher you go, specifically, man, if you watch these, these folks that are doing it on, a, uh, on an Olympic level, a pro- professional level, it, it is to the maximum. And one of the things you, you learn when you're doing that is how to harness those things. And so um, some of the things that we did you have to learn physically are, are, are things like the difference between centrifugal and centripetal force. And I know you're like, oh, thanks for the physics lesson, at, you know, in the morning. Um, but literally, one of the things about those two things is, is uh, centripetal force is kind of what you watch when you're watching an ice skater. Uh, somebody in the Olympics, when they draw their arms in and they go faster spinning, that's considered centripetal force. The force is coming in, the energy is making that speed up. Centrifugal force is more of what I dealt with in my events where um, when I was throwing the discus or shot put or things like that, where it's the energy going tightly inside moving out. So it's it's staying close within, and then launching some object far into the distance using that energy going out. And one of my favorite um, authors, uh, a guy named G.K. Chesterton, he was like a precursor to C.S. Lewis. If you've ever heard of this guy, he wrote that what he wrote a kind of a, a cool comment about what Christianity is. He said Christianity is a centrifugal religion, not a centripetal one. In other words. Christianity, what it is, 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 is something that moves inward-outward. It can't but help move outward. And different than any other religion, idea, or philosophy, it doesn't move outward-inward. It's not a religion about bettering yourself. It's not something that you take on as a supplement. It's something that is to actually activate, move outward. That The good news of the gospel is that. And, You know, we've been looking at the book of Acts, and we're kind of coming in for a landing soon on it. And with Acts, the whole point of the book is how did the gospel, this good news, this news of Jesus Christ that we're sitting in here even talking about today, how did it come from this little bitty thing, honestly, a small segment of of people and explode out into the whole world? And when Luke wrote it, and Luke, who was the gospel writer, and I, you know, a room this size, I don't ever anticipate everybody in this room, and even if you say you've been a Christian, know who, who you know, all about the Bible or those kind of things. Luke was the gospel writer, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. He wrote Luke as his volume one about the narrative accounts of Christ, and he wrote Acts as his volume two. And in volume two, which we've been looking at, it is that point. It is this whole idea of how does when Jesus ascends into heaven and these people take on this good news, which is the gospel news of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, how does it go out into the world? And to remind you, the actual beginning of Acts starts this way. Listen, he says, In the first book, meaning Luke, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. You see, what Luke is saying, and even beginning his entire book about, he begins Luke the same way, is to say to Theophilus that this news is true. And what we've been seeing at the end of the book of Acts is this almost like court scene being played out that Paul keeps getting handed on and on and on. And these Roman figures that seem to be bigger and bigger and bigger. (laughs) Their their authority, their rule, who they are, their names. And that's what we're going to actually look at today. We're going to look at three figures from this passage that kind of unpack a lot of chapters. But I think in this passage it condenses what is their reaction to this news that's going out everywhere? How do these three figures handle that? And it began with Theophilus, but how does it end? And we'll see as we even come in for a landing in the next couple weeks as we go into Advent. How does the gospel continue to go out? So we're going to look at Festus. Somebody after the service was like, I just kept thinking Festivus from Seinfeld. That's no, it's Festus, not Festivus. You want it to be Festivus, it's Festus. Festus, Agrippa, and Bernice, which is kind of funny because the first two, we don't have Festus and Agrippa around us, but Bernice. It's like, and Bernice, there she is, you know. So it's Festus, Agrippa, and Bernice. And in in these chapters, for the last several chapters, it's been unpacking, like I said, Paul's court case. And in that court case, you've seen a few figures leading up to Festus. One was a guy named Felix, where, where you may have heard of him. And he was an interesting guy because for two years he locked Paul up because Paul was in serious trouble with, with uh, Jewish authorities that were kind of thinking, Is he, he's making a lot of trouble, what do we do? But Paul found his help. He found his aid in Roman justice at the time. But what happened was Felix, who was the Roman governor, said, Okay, yeah, I'll take care of you. But he listened to him and said, whoa, 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 you sound a little weird. I'm going to put you in jail, and you're going to come hang out with me for two years. And he did this literally two years. It says that when Paul started talking to him about his life and the gospel, he was like, yeah, 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 that's great and all. Why don't you go to jail, and I'll call you back out when I need you. He did that for two years. After two years, Felix is, is upended because he couldn't keep the peace. You had to do that. If you were a Roman governor, what was your status and how you moved up? You had to keep peace. Felix couldn't handle the heat, and so he was upended. Festus comes in, and Festus, different than Felix, a little bit like, why, why were you in jail for two years? Why not just hand you over to the people? Or why not just get rid of you? And so Paul has to, again, appeal for justice. You see him being his own advocate over and over and over. And up to this point verse 24, Paul is finally now in another court setting that he's appealed to, higher than even Festus. He's just given his testimony for the third time. And what's fascinating about that is Luke, as an interviewer and and testimony and historian, has taken all these things and compiled them together. And he doesn't just decide to do it once, but three times has Paul share his testimony. And it's genius because every time he does, Paul shares it in a way that captivates his audience. And he uses a line in there that's really interesting. He says that when Jesus appeared to him, The resurrected Jesus appeared to Paul. It says, stop kicking against the goads, which would have been a Roman phrase. They would have understood it's a goad. It's a sharp stick that you poke animals with to get them moving. And the Roman figures would have recognized this phrase, and the reason being is because it meant you can't kick against God, that you can't go against God. And every time where they kept saying, you're crazy, and this is where it gets to in verse 24, Festus with a loud voice says, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your learning is driving you out of your mind. What brings them to that point? The resurrection. Every time Paul shared his testimony, the point in which Felix said, uh, that's enough. It actually says Felix got alarmed and said, away with you for now. I'll call you in a little bit. Festus takes it to the next level. You're crazy. <laughs> Why? Because the resurrection really is crazy. It's a wild thing to think about. Look, uh, let's step back for just a second. <clears throat> a friend of mine in, in Greenville, South Carolina, he a pastor. He was sitting at a table with someone just meeting. I remember him telling this story that he was talking about with this person across the table and saying, talking about the new heavens and new earth and those kind of things, and out of the corner of his eye, he could see the person next to him lifting the coffee cup to their mouth, and they just went like this, and like jolted, hearing new heavens, new earth. You know, we talk about this language all the time, but we don't realize, do we realize what we're saying? We're sitting in a room right now on a Sunday morning worshiping and singing to a first-century Jewish man who raised out of a grave. It's a little weird. It's okay to admit that. And there may be people in this room that, that haven't experienced Christianity, or maybe you're coming back into it and you're like, I don't really understand, or you've been burned or bored or cynical with it. You know, many reasons why we are is because it's become rote. It's become this kind of strange thing where we're just like, we do it, yeah, this is kind of part of the deal. The resurrection is like nothing else. The Scripture and passages that Paul talks about, it's not until he gets to that point that they say, Paul, you are out of your mind. And Paul says, I'm not out of my mind. I'm speaking rational words. It's not about me. It's not about learning. It's not about what's... I can know it's about what he has done. It's about who he is. You know, there's a um, J.R. Tolkien who writes, you know, all the great books we know of. And, you know, every pastor has to quote him every now and then in a sermon. If you don't, you know, you've got to do it. Well, he talks about the Lord of the Rings trilogy. And one of the great things that he mentions, not in that trilogy, but just as a side note, he calls it a catastrophe. Have you ever heard this language before? He says there are things in the Bible and what the the story of the gospel account is it's called a you catastrophe. if you break the word apart, you meaning good and a catastrophe right He calls it a sudden joyous turn. He says the difference in the Bible and what we're reading in the scriptures is that it of all the suffer- of all the difficulty of all the reality that's going on and what we read in the Bible, that's why Acts in these chapters is interviewing in this process of of Luke feels like eh, it's just do 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 it. Why the sudden joyous turn? because the resurrection is that it is such a marquee turn that it takes everything with it we are in the midst of so much difficulty I mean. There's been a lot of difficulty and, 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 and heartache and pain and questions and confusion and a meeting today that we have to go through again. And l- let me tell you, the point of this story is that the you catastrophe reminds us that it is not end with a catastrophe, no matter where we are in this. The whole reason why we even meet on a Sunday morning is to remind us that, what is the purpose of us meeting? When we think it's just Sunday, and we're like, "It's the 11 o'clock service, and we go to that. But you know, when we've been looking at Acts, the whole reason they actually moved their entire day of worship from Saturday to Sunday, was to celebrate every week the resurrection. They moved their worship on the first day of the week so that the resurrection was what drove them out into everything else. Is it just learning? Is it crazy? Yeah, it's all the above. (laughs) That we would leave this place and living in what it means to have a resurrected Savior would transform the way that we speak to each other, the way that we go back to our work, the way that we go into a Monday and into our families and friends and into our lives again. And yet, that is what's supposed to change us. It's not just, hey, this is great, or we feel better, or we do this. It's that there's an actual resurrection physicality from the grave that actually does that work. Yeah, it is crazy. Yeah, we have learned it. But, yeah, it's a you catastrophe. It is the joyous turn that we need and have to sit in. It's what we've got, it's our fastball, people. And that's the delight of the gospel. That's where Festus can't believe it. And it even goes on. And so Paul is so genius, he's like, okay, Festus, you think I'm crazy. Let's talk to Agrippa for a minute. And this was actually very unique. For Paul to actually turn and say this and look at Agrippa and says, For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. You didn't do that in a court setting. You spoke to the court. You spoke. Festus was in some ways his advocate. Not a great one, but his advocate nonetheless. So he turns his eyes to Agrippa, and he starts speaking to Agrippa in his face about this this, this life of his. And it's interesting because Paul knows some things about Agrippa that we may not know. He says things like, for the king knows about these things. What does the king know? You know, there's a lot of debate about what Agrippa, his past was, who he was, what he thought about. Some think, okay, did he dabble in Judaism? Did he have Jewish roots? Was he a God-fearer? I think probably a blend of all of the above. But what it meant to be a God-fearer in the Bible, which is probably what he was... We see a lot of these kind of people in the New Testament. Now, they weren't called that. You see that phrase a little bit in in the Bible. But a God-fearer was somebody who, who maybe adhered to some of the customs, some of the morals, some of the parts of the Scriptures, as it even appeals to Agrippa. He says, you know the prophets? that He knows those, but they haven't gone all the way to take on the rites and rituals of becoming that Jewish person so that was what a God fear was but you can see where Paul's going he says even pushes it a little bit he says for the king knows about these things and I speak boldly to him for I'm persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice for this has not been done in a corner he's saying to the whole court he said look what's happened with the good news of the gospel is it's not like any news it's actually not done in a corner I remember I was in a conversation, a heated one, be it that, years ago, with someone about uh, Christianity. (laughs) Uh, They were debating me and and pulling out all these things, and I was too. And it was it was not like you know contentious enough to where it was like yelling or something, but it was it was not settled. And I remember this specific phrase from this person that said to me, "Hey, do you think you have?" truth backed in a corner you think you have truth backed in a corner and now I don't remember what I said back then I pray that it was something kind and, <laughs> and uh, wise uh, looking back now what I pray that I said and i um, not sure but hope is to think you know what Now truth actually has me backed in a corner Paul draws out something that's really massive for us. Christianity is not something siloed. It's not a secret. It's not something just personal for us. It's centrifugal. It pushes out. And where does he go with it? He's genius. He's so wise with Agrippa. He goes, do you believe the prophets? And I love Paul. He doesn't wait. He's like, do you believe the prophets? Believe you do. It's like he jumps on it so quick. He's like, okay, Agrippa doesn't even have a second to speak, nor is he, he's also surprised anyway that Paul would address him in a court of such manner. But he says, do you believe the prophets? Now, why would he go down the prophets? Now, if you're here and you're unfamiliar with the Bible, it it builds up towards the New Testament where we are, that there are prophetic writings that are speaking about that God is going to fulfill this thing. And what he's pushing on with Agrippa is to say, you believe all the prophets. You've read all these things. You've brushed up against it, and you do it over and over, and you're somehow unwilling to take it on as your own. But you believe the prophets, and what did they say? That there's fulfillment. Fulfillment. And in a room like this, that word can carry a million different things. What it didn't mean here was wish fulfillment. It meant a couple other things that I think maybe get deeper down under the surface. One is that it really meant fulfillment historically. That there is a history here that's being taken up. That God doesn't just unfold history, he actually takes it up into himself. You know, one of the things um, that I say often at our um, location and sometimes when I meet with people to really encourage about what is the difference between Christianity and any other religion, idea, philosophy? Like what what really does separate it? And here's something for you to take, is that the difference is in Christianity the events drive the teachings rather than the teachings driving the events. This is huge because if you think about it, What is the Bible all about? Is it just an unfolding of morals and things, or is it God's activity? See, the marquee difference of what it means to follow Jesus, what being a Christian is, is that the events drive the teachings. It's not that we received a bunch of good ways to do things, and that's what I think many of us are maybe even recovering from. if we are feeling in a place of burned or bored or cynical with church, Christianity, that we we have gotten stuck and forgotten, that it doesn't begin with our teaching. It begins with the events. What is Paul's entire testimony about? It's not, let me tell you these treatises. It actually has nothing to do with that. It's about God's action in his life. The whole Bible is set in this motion of God's work. History is unfolding because the events of God's work of redemption up in through Jesus is what drives the way we teach and what Paul is teaching. But it also is fulfillment physically. You know, in a minute we'll come to this table and you'll hear a little bit more about that. But this isn't just a fulfillment of like ideas, most of the Roman governors and procurators really enjoyed this. They, were, they brought Paul in. They're like, dude, this guy's got some good stuff to say. And then when he hit the moment where it got resurrection, you know why they pushed him away? Because they were like, this guy actually believes it's real. That's weird. Uh, go away for a little bit. We'll talk to you later. They'd rather it stay in this ideal, ideal thing, right? But what's the fulfillment? It's physical. It touches the tangible parts of your life. Walker Percy, the great Southern writer, he often said this when he talked in one of his writings. He said, okay, that's great about all the great ideas and things. I just want something that helps me make sense of an ordinary Tuesday. Now, isn't that where we really are? What is the beauty of the fulfillment of of what Paul is talking about through the prophets isn't something that's just out there way far in the distance. It's right now. There's a physicality to God's redemption of your sin, his work in your life, that his life, death, and resurrection is actually fulfilled in the New Testament. And its work is still being played out right now in your life. And here's where I think Paul goes the, the deepest. And I'll tell you this. Listen to what he says. He says, For I'm persuaded, in verse 26, that none of these things has escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe in the prophets? I know you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? That's all he could say. Most commentators say Agrippa was so taken back by Paul jumping on him in the moment that he was like, are you trying to make me a Christian right now? Like, this is your court case. He said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as am I except for these chains. Do you know where he goes last? The fulfillment personally, that the fulfillment is that his story is actually wrapped up in Jesus' story. He's focused on Agrippa to say, yeah, history, physicality, we can talk about the problem, it's coming for you. Your story matters, and in a short time or long time, you will realize that your story is beautiful and is soaked up into what's called the good news. Good news that is not just something you warrant your opinion for, but you give a reaction to. Of Jesus' work connecting to that story. I love this book called um, A Severe Mercy. Don't know if you've ever heard of it, read it. It's an older book by a guy named Sheldon Van Auken who was an um, <clears throat> Oxford man who had friends. He talks about his work processing, basically, of becoming a Christian and what it was like for him to, to soak in that and to see not just the intellectual side of it, but the whole story of it. Listen to what he says. He says, "...these were our first friends, close friends, more to the point perhaps all five were keen, deeply committed Christians." But we liked them so much, we forgave them for it. We began hardly knowing we were doing it to revise our opinions, not of Christianity, but of Christians. Our fundamental assumption, which we had been pleased to regard as an intelligent insight, had been that all Christians were necessarily stuffy, hidebound, or stupid. People to keep one's distance from. We had kept our distance so successfully indeed that we didn't know anything about Christians. Now that assumption soundlessly collapsed. The sheer quality of the Christians we met at Oxford shattered our stereotype, and thenceforward a reference in a book or a conversation to someone's being a Christian called up an entirely new image. Moreover, the astonishing fact sank home. Our own contemporaries could be at once highly intelligent, civilized, witty, fun to be with, and Christian. What does it mean to reflect the good news of the gospel? It means you recognize that your story is not, it's not about you, it's not all about you. It's about what God has done and is doing, and He has given us one another in that. And it gives you joy and meaningful, joyous turn in your story, even no matter where it is in the moment, to see that joy. And you know, there's somebody in this passage that's really interesting. You don't see them, but you, you don't hear them, but you see them. It's Bernice. At the end of this, it says, the king rose and the governor and Bernice, there she is, and those were who are sitting with them. If there's one person in the story that's really interesting to me, it's her. Because you actually see her name littered throughout the last two chapters, 25, 26. We don't know much about her at all. You don't hear her. I don't know if Luke intentionally just wrote her in a bunch, but not anything of her quotes or... in his interviewing or his study to put acts together because she didn't have much to say or there was something else. We read some other parts of her in history and her help, even of the Jewish people and of trying to remain peace. But she was quiet. She was the sister of Agrippa. Sometimes it's hard when you read of a a silent personality or you encounter someone like that because you think, are they either judging me or they're either really thoughtful or maybe both? And maybe that was Bernice. We don't know. But what we see about Bernice that's interesting is that she's consistently hearing Paul. We don't know what she did with it. Maybe it was white noise to her. Maybe it was something that she just dismissed. You know, I was listening to a podcast recently about pastors in the UK, and they were talking about how um, in the UK that, that they're still ahead of the United States, but America is catching up quickly to what it's like to be in in such a churched, Christianized atmosphere that even in the UK that's covered by the Church of England, you know, when they talk about the church, you know, people just kind of tune out. In a city where we have a church on every corner, I think it could be easy to think about Nashville in even the same terms, possibly. what, What does the church look like in a place where people are moving here by the droves, people come into these doors, and it's maybe the second or third question people ask when they land in Nashville. Hey, what do you do for a living? What neighborhood are you in? Where do you go to church? Whether they do or not. But the deeper question is, what do we do with that? How is this church... Not different from every other church. It's not the point. We're not trying to be cool. We're trying to heal. How do we come together in a moment? How does the gospel go out? It goes out through difficulties, he's suffering. It goes out through identifying the Savior who did the very same thing. It goes out by Us humbling ourselves, saying we are a mess. Goes out by us looking at one another and saying, you know what? When I get to heaven, I'm going to be wrong. All of us will. And the only thing that's right is the one who raised from the dead, the one we trust in and look to. Who's our advocate? Is Jesus. You know, it's interesting walking through these court cases with Paul. I've noticed that he is consistently his own advocate. It's a really, um, gosh, vulnerable thing to think about. Think about what it's like for him to consistently move things forward and push them forward. Just a brief part of our story is years ago, our home flooded, and we've just gotten back into it about two and a half years into the making. If there's anything from all the, you know, having to deal with rebuilding a home and dealing with things, a part of it, that have been the hardest, that have given me the most gray hairs, (laughs) the most raked over parts of my soul, is actually having to learn what it means to be my own advocate over and over, and not the easy ways. And it doesn't mean there weren't people helping. It doesn't mean we, people didn't care or lean in, but you can only do that so much. And to have been on phone calls over and over trying to get things moving, to sit in city council meetings that feel like bad Parks and Rec episodes, to, to go downtown and sit with the director of TEMA and see if they can do anything, and to feel over and over the emotional exhaustion of trying to stand and be an advocate for myself, for our family. And you know what Paul realizes in this moment? And you see it at the very end when they say, well, he could have been freed. He recognizes actually his only advocate, his true one, that he can, no matter whether his life ends there or later, is really in Christ. I bet he was exhausted And yet the story that he had to go back to over and over in order to to bring his own healing and encouragement was in Jesus. Look, we're coming to a table here that is not of our body and blood. We have to remember that. From all the things that we've gone through, I didn't set this table, The, the kind servers who Brought the tables in and put everything. They actually didn't even set this table. Jesus set this table. And you know what? The Romans thought they were crazy for it. They said, y'all are cannibals. Why are you eating body and blood? That's so weird. It is. Why in the world would God do that? Because the only way, the only way, that we can live and know our story is taken up to know that we actually have an advocate that touches our sin that is as real as the things that we taste and touch and to remind us of that every single week is that if he gives us his body and blood every single week. He does that work of activity. And you may be here this morning and you may be sitting there going, man, this, is, this has been an, an interesting Stories engaging maybe, boring other parts, I don't know. <laughs> you may say, I don't know if I follow Jesus. You know, if you, if you don't, I'd encourage you not to take at the table. You know, you don't want to do something disingenuous. Either come forward, fold your hands, receive a benediction, or remain in your seat, grab somebody. Do what many of these characters did. You could even say, this is crazy, I'll talk to somebody. Or be in silence and maybe... Come up and say, later, I need to figure this out. But you may be here and follow Jesus all your life. Maybe you're saying, I've been in the church all my life, and it's kind of the thing I just do. Let it stir your heart in a way that you never have before. Let it step back and know that this is not rote. It's a relationship that God has done. It's crazy to think he would give himself so that we might be sons and daughters and that he's an advocate both now and until he returns. Amen? Amen? Amen. Praise be to God.